is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining me today for episode 41 is Jungian analyst, author, and lecturer, Dr. Robert Tominsky. He first earned a master's degree in health and medical sciences from the University of California, Berkeley, and then went on to receive a doctorate in psychology and mental health from the University of California, San Francisco. From 1987 to 2001, he served as executive director of San Francisco's Oaks Children's Center, a therapeutic day school for children and adolescents with emotional and autism spectrum disorders. During that time, he obtained a second master's degree in business administration from Berkeley. Dr. Tominsky completed his analytic training at the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco, where he later went on to serve as president from 2014 to 2016, and now teaches in their analyst training program. He is also currently a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at UC San Francisco. He is a review editor for the Journal of Analytical Psychology and is the 2015 recipient of their Michael Fordham Prize for his article, Lost in Cyberspace, Finding Two Adolescent Boys Hiding from Their Own Humanity. Later this year, he will be delivering the talk, Apocalyptic Themes in Times of Trouble, When Young Men Are Deeply Alienated, at the 21st Congress of the International Association for Analytical Psychology in Vienna. His first book, The Psychology of Theft and Loss, Stolen and Fleeced, was published by Routledge in 2014, and his latest book, Male Alienation at the Crossroads of Identity, Culture, and Cyberspace, was published by Routledge in December, and it is the subject of our talk today. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, February 20th, 2019, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Dr. Tominsky. Hi there. Thank you for the lovely introduction. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I'm very interested, first of all, in your education. You have two master's degrees and a doctorate, and you went through the training program to become a Jungian analyst, which is quite an ordeal uh, in and of itself. So if you would tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to wanting to become a Jungian analyst. Um, yeah, so I think that probably the best way to, to answer that is to, to do it a, somewhat chronologically, mm-hmm. although that, that could be a, a bit of a, a, a rote thing too. But uh, so I, I got into this program, it actually was a joint program between UC Berkeley and UCSF called the Doctor of Mental Health Program. And it was a very innovative program for its time. Uh, very psychoanalytically oriented in terms of the the theory and the treatment approach that we used and working with patients. Uh, but we also learned a lot about psychopharmacology. And mm-hmm. while we were in training, we actually could uh, write scripts and orders uh, for psychiatric, uh, you know, medications for lab tests and that kind of thing. Uh, as you can imagine, this was a, a bit of a, of a hot potato in terms of the professions duking it out. And 
so the, the program lasted from 1973 to 86. Okay. And, um, uh, after I graduated, there was a big question mark about how we would be licensed. At one point, the hope had been that we would get something called a limited medical license, which is kind of what optometrists have mm-hmm. um, and podiatrists as well, and and that it would just apply to working, you know, in psychiatric. Um, situations with patients and prescribing psychotropic medications. And that that sort of never quite made it off the launch pad in, in California. And so we ended up being uh, adopted, I think you could say, by the Board of Psychology. And most of us who have been in clinical practice went on to become licensed as psychologists. And um, during that time, I, I of course, I, I met some Jungian analysts. I, I, I had some supervision uh, with uh, some really terrific analysts and uh, just really liked kind of the openness of the Jungian approach and felt like, you know, there was something fundamentally more alive and, and qualitatively different about it from what I was learning about psychoanalysis, the more Freudian tradition. Okay. And so, uh, so I began an analysis with a Jungian, and um, you know those sorts of things shape us really strongly. And so, uh, when it became time for me to think about what I was going to do with my career, I I worked in this uh, therapeutic school as you, you mentioned in your your intro for fourteen years, and I I tell people that that was probably seven years too long. Okay. It it, uh, it it was a very intense uh, setting, and and many of the uh, experiences I had with with particularly with boys. Uh, therapeutically and trying to understand, you know, some of the tragedies and traumas that they had gone through comes from that experience over that that period of time. When you were there, you were practicing as a clinical psychologist. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I... I, you know, I had a lot of administrative duties, but mm-hmm. I started the training program there. I So we, we then began to take uh, graduate students in psychology who would come to the center and do either a year or two of what's called a practicum or an internship. And so I, I did a fair amount of supervision and teaching. And I occasionally saw some of the, the kids uh, in therapy myself. Usually that was covering for uh, one of our, our our wonderful clinicians who was going on a maternity leave. Okay. Uh, so, and then uh, when I finished, uh, you know, kind of my time there, I, I thought, well, I'm going to apply to the Young Institute in San Francisco, and and I really had a desire at that point to become an analyst. I liked what I my experiences that I had with the analysts here in San Francisco. And I also liked the kind of the approach that, that they took toward, toward training and which, um, you know, was really a, a very, very rewarding experience for me. When you were working as a clinical psychologist, you were primarily working with children. Is that correct? Primarily, yes. Yeah. So during that period that we're talking about definitely Mm -hmm. children. I had a small private practice and which I saw just adults. 
Um, but that was, you know, probably like what we would call like a little bit less than a quarter time practice because I had a full time job. You had a full time job working with the 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 children and adolescents at the Oaks Children's Center. And so my question for you, though, is when you decided to enter the training program at the Jung Institute in San Francisco to to then eventually practice as a Jungian analyst, Jungian analysts don't typically see children. So was that a, a, a choice that you made where you wanted to then start seeing adults in your practice and not children anymore? Mm, good, a really good question. That's one of the um, kind of gems about about the San Francisco Institute is that there are a fair number of analysts who work with adolescent and children. And uh, we actually have uh, a, a child an adolescent certification. You have to get your adult certification first, but you can also be certified as a child and adolescent analyst in San Francisco. Okay, is that so, something that is is uh, just at the San Francisco Institute? Because one of the other things I wanted to talk to you about is specifically the Jung Institute of San Francisco, because I've never had an analyst on the podcast before, mm. you know, who trained there. And so I was hoping that you would, and you served as president there too. So I was hoping you would tell all of us a little bit about that institute. Mm -hmm. And sure. this is one of the things that's maybe unique about it. Yeah, it, it is. There, I, you know, I don't know the exact number of child programs uh, that you worldwide that are affiliated with Jungian institutes, but it's it's no more than a handful. So we're we're talking about probably less than five, and so you're you're correct that this is a rare uh, kind of a rare bird, <laughs> and and so. Um, so that that is something that is part of the San Francisco Institute, and so I did not have to make the choice of, um, you know, in quite the way that 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 um, you know your question, like what you were asking about, like would I have to, you know, then reorient myself away from children and adolescents to adults? I right now in my practice, it's about fifty fifty. Okay. So about half of my practice are children and adolescents and the other half are adults. And seeing them, you're seeing them analytically. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So you're yeah. looking at their dreams and their fantasies and discussing things symbolically with them. Absolutely. And <clears throat> talking a fair amount too about, about the relationship, the analytic relationship, uh, you know, sort of in terms of transference and counter-transference, which is the jargony words for, for what happens in the room between us. Uh, and then also with children, I have a sand tray that I, I many of the, the children use, and, and that's um, a technique, again, that, that um, our institute in particular has really solid, solid analysts uh, who represent that tradition. Would you say a little bit about that sand play? Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, so Doric Health, who uh, I believe had an analysis with Jung in Zurich, she worked with children and uh, in Zurich, and she wanted to develop a, a method based on Jung's ideas. And I, I believe the story goes that she had a uh, sandbox in her garden, and she noticed children playing in it. Um, and so 
she was very intrigued about like whether or not um, that could be modified into something that you could use in a consulting room or a therapist's office. And so she developed this um, this you know really process and technique that uh, you have to have figurines. So you you know you have to have a collection of small figurines that that represent sort of almost like different archetypal ideas. Um, so in my office, there's a, a fair amount of knights and princesses and um, cavemen and cave women and animals of all different kinds. And so the children um, uh, and, you know, on occasion, some of the adolescents and adults I work with use this too, uh, will create a scene in the sand tray. And, and so uh, the idea being that that almost has a dreamlike aspect to it, that you're encouraging a dream in the waking life in a way. And that that uh, what you see represented is often says something about where the psyche is at and what the person may be may be kind of either struggling with or are just trying to break through to. So is it sort of a picture that is created in the Santre or is it an acting out of a scene? It can be both. I, I mean, um, a lot of times the way I, I usually introduce it is to say, we're, you know, you're going to make like a scene or a, a world and, uh, you know, we will see what happens. And so um, boys tend to make, in my practice at least, tend to make the scene. And then I take a, a quick snapshot of it and so that I have a, a record okay. and then they'll often ask, oh, can I play with the figures now? And of course they can play with the figures. And so then, uh, then they, they, they create, it's, it's almost always a battle scene, I can say. So. Right. And then you sort of break that down the way that you would a dream. I think of it that way. Yes. Yeah. And I don't, I, you know, I don't, usually interpret much about it, but I, I often, it's usually very, very helpful. It has an expressive function for the person doing it. Mm -hmm. So it's a way to get something out of the mind and to be able to have it be witnessed by another person. So it, it has a, a nice kind of analytic holding function that way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's expressive. And then for, for me or another analyst or therapist using this, it's a way to also kind of get a sense of, oh, so that's what's going on. So, so I can give you a quick example, yeah. um, w which would be that, that uh, um, a boy I've been seeing for a few months now, uh, his first tray, uh, I won't go into a whole lot of detail, but in the center of it, he put a, a, a there's a mummy coffin that I, I bought at some museum, and he put that in the middle. And um, so, so I thought, well, that's kind of interesting that he put that in the middle, and I think all I would really else I would need to tell you about this boy is that that in the past few months he was diagnosed with a pretty serious chronic illness, mm -hmm. and you could think that loss would be something going on for him. And so when I saw that coffin in the middle of the the sand tray, I because it it really didn't bear any much relationship to the rest of what was going on in the sand tray. Okay. I I thought 
wow, that is really giving me a lot of data about just how much that is is uh, something about having lost health, lost his childhood, um, that, that that's really weighing on this boy's mind. And, and that's something else that I love about Jungians and Jung psychology and the work we do in analysis is looking at things symbolically and not literally. And in uh, you have a YouTube channel and you've got three videos up there and I'll put links to all of those on Dr. Tominsky's podcast page, the this episode page. Um, one of the things that I noticed about you that I love is how you have this ability to look at things symbolically. And my analyst was so great at that. And she would say things that I never would have thought of before. And so instead of seeing that coffin and looking at it as a coffin, you looked at it symbolically. And mm-hmm. it's not about a literal coffin or a literal death. Oh, this boy's going to die. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. right. No. Yeah. And that's something that I, I want to emphasize every time I can about how Jungian psychology is a little different from other forms of psychology is because we're looking at things symbolically. And speaking of that, another thing that I heard you say, and I think this is in the book too, is that symptoms are trying to direct a person towards something. Mm -hmm. So is that another thing that maybe you look at when you're and, and I also wanted to ask you, with the sand tray, is it always a rectangle or is it ever a circle? Um, well, the, yeah, so the, the sand tray is, is, is a rectangle and it's a specific dimensions. And, and again, this goes back to the Dora Kalf. And mm-hmm. um, she, she really thought that, that it, it, it kind of had to be a certain size. This is my understanding of it. And okay. so I, I should qualify. I'm not, I'm not really that like the an expert in sand play there are plenty of them out there mm-hmm. um, but but that she wanted uh, it to be uh, this these certain dimensions for a couple of reasons one of which is that that when you look at it it kind of captures the perceptual field um, and then also secondly that that it's not so overwhelming so it's not yeah. too big and that you have to have to fill it with everything and the advantage with it being a rectangle is it it does kind of invoke something about a a mandala and so so you have the four sides and you can sort of you can sort of use that in a in a kind of way to think about well what might be going on with some of the spatial aspects of the psyche in other words what what's in the center what what's off to the side what's in a corner what gets buried and and so i i think that that there were several reasons that that she she kind of uh you know decided on that particular shape mm-hmm. um you're the other part of what you were just asking me about the 
you know, thinking about symptoms, Jung had this word, uh, he liked using Greek and Latin a lot, and so yes. he used uh, telos, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, I think translates as, as uh, purpose. And so he, he very much saw the telos or the purpose in a symptom as very, very important to understand. And so that the symptom isn't just an expression of pain and suffering, but it's also trying to call attention to something that is trying to heal. And part of uh, an analyst or a therapist's job, if you're working in a, in a depth model, is to try and really see that, that there's something inside there that's looking to be communicated and to try and help the person find that. Yes. Which is not always an easy thing to do. No, no, no. I, I, I think in, in, you know, in, in my book, I, I use this idea of, of the house as a metaphor. So, uh, you know, that you can think of the psyche or our psyche is a, is a bit like a house. Yes. And so the, the question would be, what kind of a house is it? Is it one that you have easy access to? Is it one that has locked rooms? Is it one that's not furnished? Is it one that all the shades are pulled down? Um, and all those, all those ways of, of thinking about it say, say something about like what's going on inside a person and, and how, how much do they feel they can share about that? And so, so I, I think that that house metaphor, it's kind of an extension in a way of, 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 of Cal's sand, sand tray, um, except that it's also vertical, a little bit more vertical, but it's another way to think about a person's mind. And there's an attic, right? And there's a basement. So I, yeah, I, I'm pretty familiar because I often dream about being in a huge house that's unfamiliar. It's not my uh-huh. house. So, yeah, we've had a field day with that. Okay, so <laughs> speaking of the book, um, which is titled Male Alienation at the Crossroads of Identity, Culture, and Cyberspace, its focus is on alienation. And when I first saw it, when I first saw the title, I was thinking of boys and men, young boys, adolescents, men, even older men, being kind of alienated from the outer world. And you, of course, being an analyst are also talking about the inner world. And (laughs) what can happen when there's a refusal to explore you know, one's inner world, one's inner life. Yes, yes. If you would briefly tell us, give us a synopsis of the book, and then we'll break it down into the various themes that that you delve into in the book. Sure. Um, so, so I, I think you know, one one way to do this would be to talk about. Um, you know why why boys and men and mm-hmm. so some of that is is has to do of course with my my clinical experience but there have been so many uh, reports and they all they all take uh, you know have titles like men adrift or failing our boys or the next male generation is in trouble th- those sorts of mm-hmm. things and if you look at uh, just statistics, and and I, I don't want to kind of you know encumber people with too much of that. But 
for example, 93% of inmates and prisoners are male. That's an incredibly high number. Uh, 79% of murder victims worldwide are male. 66% of suicides worldwide are male. Uh, In the U.S., men are twice as likely to have substance dependence issues as women and um, boys as girls. And so those numbers aren't, aren't just aberrations they're they're saying something about the male psyche and And also what's been in the news lately unfortunately are these mass shootings i don't think any of them were done by females none of them were done by 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 women and i just want to make a note here if anyone is interested in statistics you do cover a lot in the book you cite lots of um articles and news sources and there are a lot of numbers in the book if anybody's interested Yes, thank you. Uh, so, so I, 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 I kind of started to compile these numbers and started to think, what is going on here with these boys and, and men? And uh, there were two things I would say that that I, I kind of got uh, onto. One was hearing a lot about video games. I, I know much more now about uh, various video games than I would have ever elected right. to want to know. Um, I've never played any of these games myself, so that's a full full disclaimer. Yeah, um, I haven't but either. I, I, and I often tell the, the boys and, and young men will often ask me, "Have you played this?" And I'll, I'll say, "No," but you know, keep telling me about what your experience mm-hmm. is as you play it. And what I would was hearing was something about um, these scenarios that again had almost a dreamlike quality to them but felt a bit apocalyptic right. and and so so people were just being decimated the landscapes were were totally ruined uh, often you know people were fighting one another and scavenging to try and escape various monsters and uh, so so I started to think about like just this, what is this telling us, this kind of destructive fantasy life that, that can be so powerful that it's, it's now a multi-billion dollar industry um, that, that uh, seems to be unstoppable? And so, so I started to think about that and, and um, you know, did a bit of research on the idea of apocalypse, which is, is really quite an interesting word with a dual meaning. Yes. So, so it, on the one hand, can mean these doomsday scenarios, but originally apocalypse meant to reveal something. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, we have the book of Revelation where in the Bible where apocalypse is portrayed. Um, and uh, But I had never made that and didn't know about that connection until I, I looked up the word apocalypse and, and found out, oh, it's to reveal. That's why it's called Revelation in, in the last book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so, so that made me think again about like what's trying to be revealed in these destructive fantasies. And the second thing that I, I really began to think a, a lot about was alienation. And, and some of that, I, I, I would say that, that a lot of times I, I heard uh, young men or, or adolescent boys say, I, I feel alone or I feel isolated. But I began to also hear a lot, I'm broken. And, and I thought, well, that's an 
interesting word. Why are they saying broken? And, and, and the more I would listen and encourage them to talk about this word, I, I, I came to understand that it was like an umbrella for alienation, but, but not just the alienation from, from others, alienation from themselves. Mm-hmm. And and so this began to really interest me and, and I, I started to do more research. I started to think about different cases that I've worked with through the years. And I I I decided that when I was gonna kind of create an outline for this book that I would I would use um, the theme of apocalypse, but but much more in the sense of trying to understand these different destructive urges that that I had heard about and hear about in my practice, and what what is it that again is trying to be communicated? Because it's not just blanket destruction. I I think. In the book, I try and break it down. I, I break it into four different categories, which is somewhat of a uh, kind of a little bit of a writer's trick in a way, because there are probably more than four categories. Mm-hmm. But I, I use the four horsemen of the apocalypse as a way to break it down and say, okay, what is this one telling us? And what is that one telling us? And with the apocalypse and the apocalyptic theme. And yes, I've noticed that too, especially more lately, more and more. Um, And when these, what do I want to say? These, uh, it's even made the mainstream news when there's some group out there that says that the end of the world is coming. And I remember in 2012, uh, specifically December 21st, 2012 was oh, the Mayan the was end the Mayan? of the Mayan calendar. Yeah. yeah. And what was going to happen. And then there was Y2K and was the world going to end in the year 2000. And so because I was in analysis at the time, I thought, well, we need to look at this symbolically. Like I was saying before, this is an internal thing, right? What's going to end? What needs to die? What wants to die? So instead of externalizing it, am am I on track here? Instead of externalizing it and saying the whole entire world is going to end, there's something in us that needs to maybe transform or die and be reborn as something else. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that's a terrific way, Laura, to put it. I I wish I had and that concise in my book, <laughs> because I, I, I think you, you really put it, I was just thinking about that, yeah, that, that there is something um, with this fascination, and, and it's not just the hero archetype or the hero myth, it's, mm-hmm. it's something, it's, it's, it's too repetitive, in other words, if it were just the, the hero cycle, you would think that, that at some point it might approach an end, but um, but the drive with which some of these destructive fantasies live on, I, I think I think you're right that, that there is something there in the psyche that's that's hidden and that's looking looking for an end and a new beginning. Yeah. Um, but it's so obscured, and and that that again gets a little bit back to this idea of alienation from self. 
And, and that's also part of why I use that house metaphor, because a lot of times, like I began to picture houses and, you know, sitting with a young man and, uh, and what I was seeing was like no trespassing signs and the windows boarded up the front door locked and bolted and probably like reinforced with steel bars on the inside. And I just began to think, wow, what is it this person is missing out on? And what's in there that's so terrifying? And that doesn't want to be seen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hiding uh, in some ways. uh, And and that's, you know, that's why that word, the meaning of apocalypse really hit me. Reveal uh, what's in there that really is unrevealed at this point, but needs in some way to be revealed. And and that is reminding me of some another theme I saw recurring in the book is that of the the anima, you know, the the feminine and these male gender roles and, and gender and identity are another thing that you cover in the book, but that boys have this fear that any of their feelings or internal states are just not manly. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. so that's something that needs to be hidden. They, they can't let anybody see. So I, I'd like you to talk about that. Yeah, the inner, the inner world is, is, is very much, uh, you, you know, again, like you, you think of the boarded up house with the no trespassing sign. That is a, a clear statement about, like, uh, don't go there. The question would be, why? And, and I think that's something that you're bringing up with, with masculinity and femininity, mm-hmm. that they're often, for, for many boys, is an understanding that looking inside themselves and, and that kind of way can be construed. And again, I, I, I can't tell you quite where these messages come from, but it's sociocultural, but that it, it can be construed as, as feminine, that there's some way about talking about feelings in a more internal way um, um, that a lot of boys feel that that potentially can diminish them. And so there, there's a lot now, of course, in the news about uh, and in a very, I think, positive way about toxic masculinity. It's a mm-hmm. conversation that we need to have and be having. Um, but it, 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 tends, it tends to be defined. I mean, I have patients now who will come in and, and bring it up and, and start talking about it as if um, it's already defined. And one of the things that I do is I, I try and say, well, let's slow down a little bit. You're using that 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 idea, toxic mas- masculinity. Let's see if we can unpack it. Tell me what you think that means. And and it'll be interesting to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but often it, it it it's clearly associated with something um, about appearing effeminate, appearing weak, appearing submissive. Um, and, and that those things are so feared that, that the, the idea of the toxic masculine is to overpower, to be dominant, to be homophobic, to be misogynistic, and that somehow that, that cloak 
um, it has a very protective function. And so, so you, you think about someone, a, a male who, who's got that mindset and you have to ask yourself how, how readily are they going to want to look inside? Be, because calling all that into question, that, that, that's like, you know, that, that's the house built out of straw in a way. And, and so, um, so there's a, a bit of a, of a problem when, when men are, are so, and boys are so kind of slipping into that, that mindset of, oh, this is what I, I need to do and think and be in order to be male. And, and those messages are, are really not, are something that don't just come from the family. They, they really permeate uh, at a cultural and social level. So what can we do about that? Um, that's a great question. Um, you, you know, I, I, I think a lot of, I mean, the hope, some of the hopeful things that I see, like, so for example, having this conversation about what is toxic masculinity, uh, you know, I heard something recently in the New York times about, uh, you know, fraternities that are trying to basically reform themselves and have uh, uh, college fraternities and have more of a, of a positive model about what it means to be a man so that they're including things like having friendship circles and, um, you know, where, where the fraternity members would get together and just talk about tough things. That, that sounds to me like, oh my gosh, breath of fresh air, finally. Yeah. Um, so, so those kinds of things I, I think are happening and are, are, are very positive signs. And mm-hmm. yeah. So would you, just going back to what we were talking about before, about violent video games, the statistics that you rattled off on who's in jail, who's committing crimes, who's committing murder, who's doing these mass shootings, at at the, I guess I want to start getting at the root of all of this. So would you say that um, this this fear of what's on the inside, uh, maybe if someone isn't, a male is in touch with what's going on in the inside a little bit or gets a glimpse of it and needs to squash that? It's a big question what, what the, the root of it is. And, and I, well, you I know. Think, let me just say, I think I'm wondering why this fascination with violence. I mean, the, the video game industry is huge. Sports, football, NFL football is huge. Wrestling, things that are 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 violent tendencies, our aggression is not. I I think it's just we don't deal with it in a healthy way. So we mm-hmm. need other people to act it out for us or to engage with it and act it out sitting at our computer mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and we haven't mm-hmm. even started to talk about this whole cyberspace world where we're having relationships that aren't face-to-face and aren't you know in person and they're they're just fantasies 
they're not real. And so we need to cover all of that too. So yeah, where can yeah. we go from here? Well, well, you know, as you were, were kind of talking there, it, it, it helped me to think a little bit about like, you know, like where does it come from? And yeah. that, that seems like, like part of what, what I think is uh, almost like a, um, I don't want to call it a default or a design flaw, but it's just in us, is that we tend to split things. It's convenient. It makes it easier. It's cognitively and emotionally quick. Um, and so, you know, to be able to say good and bad is, is like much easier than dealing with ambiguity and like, well, this thing might be good sometimes, but bad other times, you know, you know what I'm talking about there. And so that also applies to masculine and feminine. It, it, it there is something that, that again, like in the psyche that pulls for a polarization and a dichotomy, but it's a false dichotomy because masculine and feminine really coexist and they're along a spectrum. Mm. They, they, they are not absolute binaries, but there, that is a hard, a hard piece to hold on to. And so I, I think almost like as a kind of cognitive and emotional shorthand, we slip into, oh, that's male, that's female. And, and that kind of thinking, you know, um, you, you can just see like that those some of those cultural tropes that you mentioned like the NFL NFL um, the 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 kind of not just the pro wrestling but uh, the the fake pro wrestling um, which again like I've heard many uh, young men and boys describe to me in detail and um, there's something uh, that pulls at a cultural level for that kind of separation to too. And and when we get stuck in that, then it really is difficult to see that this is a spectrum we're talking about, and that uh, y- you know each of us has uh, male and female qualities in us, and and how do we appreciate both of those things? That that is hard um, to hold on to for an individual psyche. I mean. People can do it, obviously, and and that's terrific. But you think about like um, for groups of people and for a whole society to do that. That's that's a bigger challenge. In the first chapter of the book, you say that the book is really in three sections, and the first section is you're looking at what leads to and reinforces alienation from these these internal states, right? Mm-hmm, technology, mm-hmm. how technology affects us, how the internet affects us. And I'd, I'd like you to speak a little bit about that. And then in the second section of the book, you're looking at external behaviors that emerge when we're talking specifically about boys and men, when they turn away from what's inside of them. And then in the third section of the book, you address how to deal with all of this in a, in a clinical way, in a clinical setting. So chapters two, three, four, you're, you're looking at, again, the internal state and chapter two is called online antics caught in the web. And this is something that I just don't feel is 
addressed enough. And I, it caught my eye because I have some friends right now who are struggling with these types of relationships that are strictly Hmm. online relationships. And I Mm. just see and hear the Mm -hmm. agony that they're going through. And you say that cyberspace is being used to negate relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And people are engaging in risks, risky behavior around these fantasies. So I was wondering if you would talk some more about that. Yeah, there's something about, um, you know, what happens on um, on these screens that that we all use, and and that you know, I think the saturation now is pretty close in this country to a hundred percent. I mean, I uh, so so you just you know everybody. I'm, I always am amazed. I go into here in San Francisco into a cafe. I'll sit down, and I usually have a a book with me, like a physical book, right. and I'll look around and. of the people are on a screen and nobody's talking to one another. And it's, it's really, really interesting to just think about like, that's a change in my lifetime. Um, because I remember going into those cafes, not even 15 years ago, and you would sit down next to somebody. And if you had a book, they might say, well, what are you reading there? Oh, I, I've heard about that author. And you'd start up a conversation um, so, so I think that, that something has happened in a pretty powerful way. Um, and one of the things I, I, I try to flush out is that, that I think that, that these screens flatten us, they flatten us emotionally and cognitively, and they, uh, create something like a transitional transactional way of relating and if you think about, you know, just, and I, I'm using that almost in a business way. So it's about exchanges, but it's about pluses and minuses. And it's very binary. So to go back to, you know, what I was just talking about a few minutes ago about male and female, um, it really pulls for polarization. And and so that that feels very, very problematic to me as an analyst because, it degrades the symbolic, like what you were saying, right. that, that people can't appreciate that this is a fantasy construction. And um, there's also a loss of an appreciation for otherness, because in that two-dimensional world, you're, you're either a friend or not a friend, or you're either, you know, a like or not a like, or you're, uh, you know, somebody who gives a thumbs up or a thumbs down. It, it's just very, very um, split. Yeah. And so, so the, the, the psychological risk, I think, when we're online a lot is, is that, that it pulls for splitting. So again, that kind of binary way of functioning, one category, another category, that's it. Um, And those categories often don't have a bridge between them. Uh, It pulls for projection. In other words, what what you were just describing earlier, you know, alluding to your friends about like, oh, this could be real. Maybe there's something real to this. Uh, and, And losing that capacity in a way to say, well, wait, this is me 
projecting a desire or a wish into something that probably isn't going to happen. Um, and then, of course, a lot of denial so that, that we can, uh, I think the thing with these online communities is that we can each find an echo chamber and we can exist in the echo chamber and, and find a, a certain comfort in that. But that if we don't venture out uh, and and see other things or listen to other things, then we we kind of lose sight of oh my gosh, there's different opinions, there's different people, there's different lifestyles, there's different kinds of families, there's all these differences that that uh, are are submerged. Yeah, I I have a friend who a male friend who I've known for decades who is around my age and he lives alone and he is as as close of friends we are he doesn't like talking about any of this stuff he doesn't want to hear about Jung he doesn't want to hear about psychology he doesn't want to look at himself and he'll say to me you know I oh Laura I don't want to be analyzed not that I'm analyzing him but you know this stuff rubs off on me. So the way I talk, right? So he doesn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah he, he doesn't want to That's look good. at it. Yeah. So my question to you is, what are the consequences for him of, he says, I don't want to look at it. I just want to have my fantasy, you know, leave me alone. Let me have my fantasy. Uh, I know it's not real, but this is, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, I don't know how old your friend is, but um, I, I can tell you from my practice that, that, that what I often have had happen is somebody in their 40s or 50s or 60s show up in my office, and rather than saying I'm broken, they'll say I've missed it. And, and that's that's what your your friend is putting at risk is that that he's missing out on something and and uh, uh, you know it's possible to go through life mostly unconscious I suppose but I think at some point um, most of us have awakenings and uh, you know sometimes those are triggered by deaths or or loss of one one form or another and. Um, you know, when that happens, that can be, again, an extremely powerful moment where a person, a man, uh, might look back and see something about uh, a closed off section of life, of inner life and of choices that, that, that he forced upon himself because of his alienation from his inner life that, that is overwhelming, that is really substantially overwhelming. Um, at the beginning of the book, I use Keats, uh, John Keats' poem, Ode on a Grecian Urn. And, and I was thinking, why the hell am I using this? You know, it's, it's old, it's schlocky in a way, and many of us had to learn it in high school. But there's really a beautiful part about, um, about like, it's, it's, a, it's a, a man he's writing about who... Uh, is just lost in the past. And it's more than nostalgia. It's like a kind of imprisonment. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so I, I think that's what your friend would be putting himself at risk for, would be that, that at some point uh, when an awakening might come, he would feel, I don't think just regret, but possibly even despair. 
Chapter three is called Narcissists in the Locker Room, Sexuality and Gender. And in that chapter, you look at masculine ideals and stereotypes. And I thought it was interesting that you said that the myth of narcissist is maybe you in general looked at um, a little wrongly and that you kind of have a different take on it. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you would say a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, you know, part, part of, uh, why that chapter is, is entitled that is that there's so much, uh, posturing that can go on and, uh, male locker rooms where, where, you know, like this kind of these really, they're almost like operatic displays, uh, where guys are trying to impress one another or, or, or talk, you know, tough or talk trash with one another. Um, you see this with boys too. And so, so that's kind of where the narcissist in the locker room idea comes from. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the narcissist myth itself, I, 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 you know, um, I've always found a, a kind of interesting, and and so I've I've read mostly Ovid's retelling of it and Metamorphoses, and um, if you if you read it there, it, it it's true that that he is a bit of a, a self absorbed, uh, you know, arrogant, probably not very likable um, youth. He's sixteen in the in the myth. And and so I I just started to think about like like what's going on here and what what might what might be some of the archetypal foundations for for what this myth is telling us, and it does seem to be saying something about a kind of aloof masculinity in a in a teenage boy um, who does not want to interact with the feminine. So you could think of Echo, who's the, the, the character in the myth that, that Narcissus rejects. You could think of, of that as a rejection of the feminine in himself. In other words, she's a, uh, a projected manifestation of that part of himself. Yeah. And so, and so, so the myth seems to be saying something about a kind of, a uh, young guy who is is really um, not very internally oriented, um, but is also very much an adolescent, and and so I I think um, y- you know at the end of the myth, of course, he 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 kind of uh, wilts away, staring at his reflection in the pond. And uh, it's interesting if, again, if you read the, the beginning of the myth, both of his parents were water creatures. Um, uh, the mother was, a, I think, a, a river nymph, and, and the father was a, a sea god. And so, um, so you think about about, well, what, what is that? These myths are usually never coincidental. So in other words, that he ends up staring into the water at an, at the end and he's a, basically a water being himself that that I started to think about as a separation problem that that's saying something and this happens a lot in adolescence that if you can't get out of seeing yourself through your parents eyes yeah. then you're you're going to be in trouble and so I think it's much more a myth about 
uh, a kind of adolescent tragedy, if you will, or the risks that many adolescents, many of us go through in our adolescence. Um, archetypally, you could think about it as having a somewhat of a universal quality that, that it happens to, to most of us. And, and that it's not primarily then a myth about, um, you know, uh, 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 narcissism as a, a kind of personality pathology. Yeah. Freud in his paper where he writes about narcissism never references the myth. And I think that's a curious omission because Freud read myths. Uh, he loved mythology. He, in his office, he had uh, like these collection of Egyptian statues from, you know, Egyptian antiquity. Um, and so I, I just started to think about, well, what, what, what's being omitted here? So, so he took something and he did see something in that one scene, right, where, where, where Narcissus basically is so self-absorbed that he neglects to take care of himself and ends up dying. Yeah. So he did see something in that one scene, but it's just a scene in the whole story. It's not, it's, you know, there's a lot of background to it. Thank you for sharing that alternate way of looking at that myth. I thought that was very interesting. Again, that's in chapter three. Chapter four is titled Breaking It at a Loss for Words. And that's where you talk about just boys and their bad communication around feelings. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and part of how I, I got to this is, again, like um, hearing all these stories about uh, boys breaking things, and mostly adolescent boys in, uh -huh. in the sense of <clears throat> you'd think that they, they cognitively have uh, you know, some capacity to communicate how they're feeling and often don't and instead end up in these situations where they uh, put their fists through the wall right. or they break a window or uh, they crash a car or something like that. And, and so I started thinking about like what, <clears throat> excuse me, what are all these breaking uh, instances telling us and are telling, you know, potentially parents and teachers and therapists and, and that there often is something about a reluctance to use feeling toned words. Um, and, and it sometimes extends beyond just a reluctance to an inability to do that. Yeah, I was and so again, ask you, right. Is, yeah. is, is it that they don't want to, or that they just don't know how? It's both. It's yeah. both. Yeah. 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 It's fascinating in the sense that, uh, you know, I give an example and, and I think all the examples are very intelligent guys, well-educated. Um, uh, you know, the, the youngest, I think, is 15 and the, the oldest in that chapter might be like in his early 20s. And, um, y you know, like the, the one guy... Uh, I said to him at one point, the older, one of the older ones, I said, you, you sound depressed. And he like looked at me flummoxed mm -hmm. and he said, depressed. And I said, yeah. And I just kind of described to him what I was seeing and why I thought that. And he looked at me and he said, what does that mean depressed? Yeah. And I, he really didn't quite get like what, what it would mean to feel depressed. And, and so 
so I realized, oh, I, I kind of made a wrong assumption. I, I thought he would know that and I need to back up and kind of do this a little differently with him and talk about, you know, why I'm seeing these things and maybe maybe how he's feeling about these different things and, and you know, sort of take it in a way very, very rudimentary about like maybe there's something about using words like sad and lonely, um, uh, grieving, that that he doesn't quite know how to link up with his experience. Mm-hmm. And he found that very useful, I should say this particular guy w- was able to work that way and was able to ma- start making those connections. And, uh, you know, at one point, a, a, a relative of his came down with a very serious illness, and it looked like that relative, it was a distant relative, might, might, might pass away. And he came in and he actually said, you know, the thought that this guy might die, he's, he's just a little older than I am. He said, it makes me so sad. And he started to cry. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it worked. You know, yeah. like, yeah. like, like um, we, we got there. And, and so, so that would be like the how piece. And the reluctance piece is much more, um, would be much more about like, uh, I, again, like what we were talking about somewhat earlier mm-hmm. about like not wanting to go there. Mm-hmm. No trespassing. Yeah. You know, in other words, there's a big sign on the door. Yeah. And chapter five is titled Alienation and Identity, Immigration, Race, and Ethnicity. And in that chapter, you talk about outcasts, rebels, loners, and slackers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> These would be all kind of... Um, you know, questions that come up when you feel a difference and you feel that somehow you're marginalized, mm-hmm. discriminated against, yeah. um, you know, not seen. Um, these are these are all different aspects, I think, to race, culture, um, language, religion, all, all these kind of and in many ways, they're such hot issues for us right. now. Um, but but they they really um, press on different things around the question of who am I? How do others see me? How do I see myself? Can I communicate how I see myself to others so that they can see me better? Um, and and those those kind of questions I think are are can be dicey if mixed up in that you don't want to look much inside yourself. In the United States, we're becoming more and more and more integrated, right? Um, I think that the population of different ethnicities, different races is just increasing. Mm -hmm. So I would think, maybe because I'm thinking about this more logically, I would think that it it was becoming easier and easier for people to, quote, fit in. Yeah. What's your experience? I, I, I don't say, you know, I wish I could say, I mean, I, I can say yes in the sense, again, that the, the you know, the millennial generation, I, I think, is going to move us forward in a surprising way around mm-hmm. these issues. Yeah. 
but I, I hear, you know, still, and I, I live in a very tolerant, liberally progressive area of the country, yeah. um, you know, and, and what um, I still have, have patients come in and teenagers, um, for example, who might be gay or bi or trans, mm-hmm. and, and they'll be afraid, uh, you know, and they'll be afraid because they've heard some of their classmates say derogatory slurs against those communities. And I, I, I have got to ask you, is that still as prevalent as it was when I was in school, which going back decades now, um, is that still the case? I, I just I just thought we were becoming a more tolerant society. Yeah, um, I, I hope we are and I, I believe we are, but okay. there still is a lot of widespread um, uh, you know, homophobia, racism. Uh, I, again, it, it's that binary trap that uh, we've been right. talking about. Right. Uh, where in, in the binary there is us and them. So it's mm-hmm. a really a way to, um, to create an experience of alienation, but it's through a person's subjugating the other and and marginalizing them and so so when that that's happening and it still does happen i i mean i i have uh you know gay patients who still are called fag and and certain settings and um you know i i was a young african-american man i was working with a teenager last year and um he he came in one day, and this was a really sweet guy. I mean, I really liked this guy a lot. And he came in one day, and he was upset, and I asked him what had happened. And he said, well, there was an older white couple on the street, and, and he was pretty sure that when they saw him, they crossed the street. Aww. And so, again, this is in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, I, 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 you know, I don't think he imagined that and it's it's of course possible he misperceived something but i i didn't my sense is these things do still happen they you know they they happen at a non-verbal level except Mm. of course when people are using verbal slurs but the non-verbal level can hurt as much as the verbal slurs i guess that would be what the the takeaway might be from what we were just discussing And and I'm I'm sorry to the audience for going through this so quickly, but and for changing the subject so rapidly. But we only have so much time, and I'm trying to get Dr. Taminsky to talk about as much as he possibly can within within our allotted time. So I'm going to move on to chapter six, which is called "Alienated Monsters Cut Loose," and that's when you look at the violence in video games and gun violence and violence online. And I would also add that you talk about the concept of contempt, which I thought was absolutely fascinating about how toxic it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. When, when we express it instead of process it, and it's just that it's not me, it's them kind of thinking. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think, you know, for the sake of, you know, maybe just keeping us with that one thought, mm-hmm. um, uh, the contempt is, is so toxic. I, I mean, if you talk to any, uh, anybody whose practice is uh, primarily doing couples or marriage therapy or counseling, uh, they they will tell you that that when contempt is is uh, uh, palpable and and um, too openly communicated in a couple, it's a pretty good indicator that couple is likely not going to make it. So what what's at the what's at the root then of contempt that that we're uh. Well, yeah. I, I don't want to answer. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. No. I. 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 I don't. You know. I don't know that there's an easy answer to that. But often contempt is thought of as as something that originates from early shaming experiences, mm-hmm. and and that when when we're shamed in particularly humiliating ways at a young age, that that that, that leaves an indelible mark on us. And that later on, when we misperceive uh, ideas or interactions where we suspect that there could be a possibility or a risk of shaming, that we react with contempt. Yeah. And in other words, to devalue the other person, to devalue the situation, and to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, and why did you call this chapter Alienated Monsters Cut Loose? What, what do you mean by monsters? Yeah, I like Frankenstein a lot, and um, I, I I think Frankenstein is one of the the great stories of alienation, mm-hmm. not not just because uh, he's a monster, but because of how we misunderstand the title. <laughs> so Frankenstein was actually Victor Frankenstein, and not the creature. The, the creature had no name and was just called the creature, <laughs> but but somehow in and you know in our minds uh, we we've kind of conflated the two and um, uh, I I think that story uh, really says something again about what it feels like when you're marginalized and humiliated that you then feel these uh, you have these experiences of wanting revenge. And, and rage and rage fueling the, the fantasy for revenge. And so, so when you get that dynamic kind of going on, you're in very, very risky territory. That, that in other words, that there's something about, uh, about those shaming experiences that have fueled so much contempt that, that it then cuts the person off from others. It cuts the person off from perceiving himself and others as part of humanity. And that then these sort of reckless, very, very dangerous, um, destructive things can get acted out. Chapter seven, accidents that become catastrophes. Uh, you discuss pursuing thrills through things like drugs and sex and recklessness with vehicles and sports. Yeah, this is uh, uh, partly has to do with, with something about alienation from being able to, again, look inside yourself and understand that when you're upset, 
if you if you don't have a way to modulate that 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 you can put yourself in risky situations mm-hmm. where totally unexpected things can happen and the the example i give at the beginning of the that chapter um, which which I, I I could you know you couldn't have made these things up I mean that, that, that that's like right. I I don't know like that I would be a particularly good fiction writer at this point in my life because mm. I've heard so many stories and mm. I'm just like so so All this real. young young man um, uh, went on a road trip with a, a friend of his and came back in one of the boons, you know, you could think of this as like, you know, like him acting out some piece of a hero's journey, like going off on his first road yes. trip. Boons. And one of the, one of the boons he brings back is a tattoo. And he, he pulls down his shirt, his T-shirt, to show me that he has gotten a tattoo of the Grim Reaper um, on his chest over mm-hmm. his heart. Mm-hmm. And I was floored. Yeah. I was, I'm sure my jaw, jaw dropped. And I, I said to him, do you know what that is? <laughs> like, like, I'm sure he, and he started to laugh. He, like, he was like, Rob, he called me Rob. He's like, Rob, I know, of course I know who that, that's mm-hmm. the death guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, within a month, um, this, this young man got in a, a car crash where his car was totaled mm-hmm. and he survived, but, um, he had had a fantasy that by having that tattoo yeah. that he was protected yeah. from, what from th- these. What do you think of that? Well, it's, it's, again, it's magical thinking in some sense, right? Like, like, uh, we all have like, you know, it's like some, some aspect of the, the lucky rabbit's foot or, um, you know, throwing salt over your shoulder or something like that. It, it really was a kind of superstitious belief he had that, uh, that that by and and in this particular case, I, I explain it more in the in the book. He 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 had a very traumatic early childhood with with abuse, uh, physical abuse from uh, parental figures, and so so when I saw that, I thought, um, oh no, oh no, that's that's not good. I'm, I mean, I literally thought that, and and I I didn't say it to him because, of course, I would never put it that way. Um, but, but my thinking was he's saying something about like, he's, he's, he's identifying with those, mm-hmm. those aggressors. He's identifying with those people who hurt him so, so mm-hmm. badly. Um, and, and in a way frightened him to death when he was four years old and five years old. So, so I, 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 I think when he said that, you know, it was his way of trying to work around something about his own early history, um, looking for some magical solution to, to not have to face that, yeah, he, he's a guy who probably needs to be a little bit more careful about what he puts himself into the situations. Now, what would you say to me seeing it as he's constellated the opposite by putting the Grim Reaper on his chest by sort of inviting death in that through that totem that symbol that mm-hmm. he, that he constellated the opposite 
Yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting idea, and and certainly I I could you know I could see some some meaning to that. I mean, clearly for him, um, the it would be. Yeah, something about like the potential, right, for 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 a death to happen, and mm-hmm. um, you know, at a point in his life where he was moving more into adulthood, you you could think of it that way. I I think for me, what overrode or would override that kind of idea is knowing about his early traumatic right. history and abusive history mm-hmm. and thinking the the risk of identifying with an aggressor in your unconscious is that you could put yourself into dangerous situations where either your life is at stake, somebody kills you, or you kill someone else. Um I, I mean, I I have seen this happen, mm-hmm. so so I think that's part of why I I felt um, frankly alarmed, you yes. know, and sure. and when I saw that. Sure. And then in chapter eight, you talk about fathers. It's titled "What Our Fathers Gave Us," and you look at the father's role in the son's development, whether the father was present or not. We all have a father. And so we have an internal father. Right, right. We, we all do. And, and if we, you know, that's the, the, one of Jung's great uh, insights about the archetypes and the collective unconscious is, is if we're not somewhat conscious of that uh, uh, internal father, he's there anyways. Yeah, yeah. And then in chapter nine, um, you look at, well, this is toward the end of the book, the the last two chapters, you're, you're looking at um, how clinicians can help, right? So chapter nine is called I'm broken, right? You go over some strategies and some of the obstacles to treatment. And in chapter 10, um, it's called revealing a boy and you look at how to help them heal. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I try to bring it back to that um, apocalypse and the revealing, mm-hmm. right. Meaning. Mm-hmm. So that, that's, that's partly why I, I, I use that word revealing a boy. And I, I think, you know, for a certain group of men, that boy is a very, very important figure. Uh, he's often lost in the unconscious. He's a boy that the man or, or the, you know, even, even an older, say, teenager might have this experience, doesn't want to remember and, and wishes were gone because it's associated with something painful. And, and so that idea of being able to, to reclaim that boy and, and understand something about him, I, I think is almost like a bit of, of the male soul. Um, and so that's, that's why I, I kind of try to introduce the idea that that anima nowadays maybe doesn't have to be a gendered concept mm-hmm. that it could it could show up in multiple kinds of ways and and so for for some some guys some men and some boys it might actually be a masculine figure rather than what what Jung thought that it would have to be a feminine one 
But did Jung say that anima meant soul? So the soul in a man would have a feminine, yes, would have a feminine um, texture or kind of appearance, yes. Yeah, but I, I mean, I too thought that, well, not necessarily, why is it feminine? Why isn't it just what those qualities are? <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, that's that's what I, um, I'm hoping a reader might take away from from that last chapter, I'm not. I'm not trying to dispute our, our, our one of the greatest greatest minds of modern psychology, but I, I think we've moved, you know, so much culturally. And yeah. of course, you know, he was Swiss, and and so you think again about those binaries: Swiss, early 20th century, late 19th century. What he grew up with, yeah. those binaries about around masculine and feminine were pretty pronounced. And we're just at a different place in time now. Exactly. Exactly. Very well put. Well, we've come to the end. I don't want to say that cliche. We've come to the end of our time today. Um, but we've come to the end of our time today, Dr. Tominsky. I was wondering if there was anything else that you would like to say that we haven't covered yet. I just want to thank you uh, oh, so much you. for 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 really. Uh, I mean, it's really a delight to be interviewed in such a thoughtful um, and and really attentive way. I, I so appreciate your your um, kindness in that. Oh, and I appreciate you saying that. And you do have another book about stealing and theft, and I would love it if sometime you would come back and we could do an episode about that because it's fascinating. It sounds like a terrific idea. I'd be happy to. Oh, great. Well, thank you again for your time today. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G.com for more information on everything that was discussed here today. There you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. This podcast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your shows. You can help support this podcast at no extra cost to you simply by shopping at Amazon.com through any of the book links on our website or by registering through our links for any of the online video courses offered by the Jung Society of Washington, D.C. You can start these courses at any time go at your own pace, and you'll have lifetime access to the material. Please look for the links to all three courses on the front page of our website. With special thanks to Routledge, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Jung. <laughs>